The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. But I'm thrilled that we have two, really, of America's leading um, experts on U.S. foreign policy. You know, if I listed all their accomplishments, we would have no time to have any part of this meeting because they have careers that are quite extraordinary. Dean Allison, of course, we all know, was the founder of the uh, Kennedy School of Government and the original dean, I guess. And Ambassador Blackwell was, in, in addition to being our, one of our ambassadors to India, was Deputy National Security Council and then have had a Deputy National Security Advisor. And they've had many, many other honors and positions. But again, as I said, we won't uh, go through all of them today. We're going to talk about this book, which I had the pleasure of returning from Cambodia yesterday. So I got to fly from, Phnom Penh, from Siem Reap to Phnom Penh to Hong Kong, where I figured, okay, I would certainly have time to read the entire book during that. This looks like a pretty short book during that, you know, five hours of travel. But in fact, I didn't finish it because really every section of this book requires kind of reevaluating the way you think about U.S.-China relations, the way you think about the United States, the way you think about India, the way you think about the world. It really is, it's a remarkable kind of accumulation of the wisdom of Lee Guan Yu. So it took me actually till I got back to Beijing and almost back to New York till I'd actually had finished the, the entire book. But it's absolutely worth reading. It is for sale, judging by the number of people here, we may run out of copies, but it is for sale. So I urge you to buy early or as we would say if we were in Chicago, buy early, buy often. Um, but, you know, they're going to just each speak for, I think, 10 minutes. Um, then I will ask some questions. I've got dozens and dozens of questions I want to ask, but I'm going to let the audience carry the burden or the benefit of being able to ask questions. So I think, Graham, you're going to go first, but let me turn it over to you, and, and thank you for being here, and thank you for writing or... or putting down compiling. all these wonderful, yes. compiling these wonderful insights from this fascinating person who I'm sure we all don't agree with, but we're always interested to hear what he has to say. So thank you very much, and thank you for coming tonight, and thank you for hosting us and for Jones Day. Uh, so I'm going to do uh, just uh, kind of television time, uh, three threes, okay? So one... Uh, why should you care what Lee Kuan Yew thinks? Uh, two, what does Lee Kuan Yew think about the future of China? And three, what does Lee Kuan Yew think about the future of Chinese-U.S. relations? So under each of those, I'm going to give you three. And these are just uh, to suggest uh, that they're morsels from a, from a feast. And the feast is prepared by Lee Kuan Yew. And Bob and I were the... Oh, I don't know. Maybe we upset the table or, uh, or serve the plate. So uh, first, why should you care uh, what Lee Kuan Yew thinks? Uh, number one, Lee Kuan Yew is the world's premier China watcher. There's no one who has watched China longer, more astutely, more intensely, in a more informed fashion and come to judgments 
about the country. Actually, he's been watching China all his life. Uh, he's actually Chinese Singaporeans. Uh, every Chinese leader since Deng Xiaoping has called Lee Kuan Yew and engaged Lee Kuan Yew asking him questions, but in which he spent literally hundreds of hours with all of the leaders of China. And he's an astute observer. Secondly, uh, if you ask what individual outside of China's leadership has had the greatest impact on China's development in the last generation, the answer again is unambiguously Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, as Ezra Vogel's magnificent uh, biography of Deng Xiaoping makes plain, uh, when Deng Xiaoping was considering uh, China's march to the market, he looked around and said, well, who could I talk to about this? The answer was Lee Kuan Yew. When he wanted to understand how this works, he came to look at Singapore and cross-examined Lee Kuan Yew at length about how this worked in Singapore. So. This is an individual who has had the biggest impact of people outside China's leadership on what's actually happened in China. Thirdly, Lee Kuan Yew was the founder of Singapore and its prime minister from 1959 to 1990. When he became the prime minister of Singapore, Singapore was a poor, corrupt port in which the per capita income was less than the poorest African countries in 1959. When he stepped down in 1990, Singapore was a first world country. And today, six million people live in Singapore and have a per capita income higher than that of Americans. So why should you care uh, what Lee Kuan Yew thinks? There's three reasons. Secondly, what, are, what does Lee Kuan Yew think about the future of China? Well, the answer is quite a lot. And what we do in this book is ask Lee Kuan Yew questions, and the answers are his answers from uh, hours of conversation with him over the last couple of years, informed by whatever he had said and written previously, which we had reviewed. So we ask we, what we think are the questions, most international people would be most interested in. And he has a capacity of being very explicit, very direct, very succinct in offering answers. For example, point one, are China's current leaders serious about displacing the U.S. as the predominant power in Asia in the foreseeable future? You can read many tomes of professors and pundits and not find an answer to this question. Okay? On the one hand, on the other hand, around this corner, around that corner, Lee Kuan Yew. Of course, why not? Who could imagine otherwise? How could they not aspire to be number one in Asia and in time the world? This reawakened sense of destiny is an overpowering force. So secondly, is this gonna succeed? Will they, will they succeed? He says, well, uh, there's no guarantees. The chances of it going wrong in China are about one in five. 
I wouldn't say zero because there are problems with weighty ones, systemic change, business culture change, reducing corruption, forming new mindsets, but one in five. So 80% he thinks the answer is going to be yes. When China becomes number one, how will it behave? What will be the consequences for its neighbors and the rest of Asia? So Lee Kuan Yew says, listen, unlike other countries like Japan or Germany, China wants to be accepted as China, not as an honorary member of the West. And what might that mean? Well, he says, we, we live in the neighborhood. Quote, they expect us to be more respectful of China as China becomes more, more influential and more powerful. They tell us that all countries, big or small, are equal. We are not a hegemon. But when we do something they do not like, they say, you have made 1.3 billion people unhappy, so please know your place. So he sees nothing out of the ordinary in China's punishment of the Philippines that's led to a 40% decline in Philippine electronic exports, their number one export to China in the past year, as there's a dispute in the South China Sea or in the significant decline in Japanese-Chinese trade, again, part of the same picture. So that's what about the future of China, and a lot more. What about the future of U.S.-China relations? Well, again, more complicated. Uh, first, uh, will there be a serious competition between China and the U.S.? Lee Kuan Yew, yes. The 21st century will be a contest for supremacy in the Pacific. Secondly, will there be a military conflict between the U.S. and China in the foreseeable future? No, no. Well, in the security area, the Chinese understand that the U.S. has spent so much more and has built up such an advantage that a direct challenge would be futile, not until China has overtaken the U.S. in the development and application of technology can they envisage confronting the U.S. confronting the U.S. militarily. But will this uh, uh, emergence of China uh, upset the global balance? the global balance, of, the balance of power in Asia and the global balance of power. And Lee Kuan Yew says, if I find my page here, uh, yes, of course. Um, I'm sorry, if I quote it, if I say my words, you'll see how poor they are in comparison to his. In any case, what he says is, yes, this will be that Never before in history has a state of this size and proportion emerged so rapidly and so that this will be a challenge not simply to the Asian balance of power or to the balance of power that the U.S. has been maintaining in Asia but to the global balance of power and that nobody has figured out how to live with such a trans transformation. So that's three threes. Why do they care what he thinks? What about the future of China? And what about the future of U.S.-China relations?
Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And again, uh, I join Graham in expressing our appreciation for having us. Um, let me begin uh, just as uh, Graham ended, uh, because while he was thumbing, I was able to find the quote I think that he was looking oh, for. And there are two <laughs> conceptual points I want to make at the beginning. This is one of them. Uh, and again, this is uh, Lee Kuan Yew speaking, quote, the size of China's displacement of the world balance is such that the world must find a new balance in 30 to 40 years. It is not possible to pretend that this is just another big player. This is the biggest player in the history of the world. Now, since all of us analogize uh, in order to try to understand the current uh, circumstances, uh, what he's saying conceptually is uh, beware of analogies because this has never ever confronted the international system before. And so uh, if, uh, if you're like Graham and me, you try to find historical analogies and you know what they are, <coughs> the Athens-Sparta or or Germany uh, at the end of the 19th century and so forth. And Lee Kuan Yew warns us against historical analogies because of the, the weight of China in the international system in the next decades. So that's point one. Second, conceptually, Graham mentioned it, but I want to just say a few more words about it, the balance of power. You may recall that in one of her very first speeches as Secretary of State at the Brookings Institution, Hillary Clinton questioned whether the balance of power was an appropriate concept to apply to current Asia and thought it wasn't. I think her views evolved over time on that score. Lee Kuan Yew is a classic 19th century European balance of power person. Um, and you recall that in the 19th century, especially the second half of the 19th century, but the Napoleonic period too, uh, believing in the balance of power had no opprobrium attached to it. It was a series of ideas about how nations in their natural state reacted with one another. And it did not depend on moral judgments, except uh, among the Russian czars from time to time, about the, uh, uh, the uh, organization and uh, implementation of the balance of power. What Lee Kuan Yew says is that the balance of power is the best optic at which, through which to look at uh, Asia writ large over the foreseeable future and that in that uh, concept the United States role in Asia is absolutely indispensable uh, because only the United States can balance the rise of Chinese power. He goes on to say that China has no concept civilizationally of partnership. And there are many Sinologists here in the room who understand his, his view, which is that uh, the Middle Kingdom 
had a certain paradigmatic view of looking at the world, with, of course, China at the center and then others paying homage. Know your place, as Graham said earlier. And that, uh, and again, Lee Kuan Yew makes no moral judgment about this. He just says that's China. And therefore, he says, uh, don't expect China to exhibit self-restraint uh, and uh, act itself to balance its own power. He might say any more than you would expect the United States to do that, by the way. And uh, therefore, he says, uh, the U.S. Uh, balancing role in Asia for the, this century is uh, indispensable. Uh, and uh, just to say a word about this, there's a chapter on the United States and uh, Lee Kuan Yew believes that the uh, persistent, even fashionable talk about America in decline is rubbish, as he says. And perhaps just to finish this, the wish is the father of the thought, because if the United States were in systemic decline, then of course it could not play that balancing role in Asia over the long term, which Lee Kuan Yew believes is so important. Uh, finally, let me say that perhaps we spent these hours with him, which was a great privilege, and he was, as you'll see in Steve was seen on the airplane, extraordinarily candid in what he had to say to us. I, I uh, and Graham and I have reviewed everything he's ever said uh, that's in the public domain. He's never been as candid as he is in this book, ever. And whether it's because he's approaching his 90th birthday or whatever, but it was, uh, there are no, and Steve said this in another way, there are no commonplace ideas in this book. Those of you who follow U.S.-China relations are getting ready to read what you've read many times before. Uh, you won't read it in this book or about Russia or about India uh, or about the international system. But I found most interesting, and I'll conclude with this and skip a bunch of what I was going to say. Uh, we, the last chapter is uh, how does Lee Kuan Yew think? If he is arguably, perhaps along with Henry Kissinger, the most preeminent, distinguished strategist in the world, how does he think? How did he get to be that way? And when he gets a new problem, how does he think? So we really pressed him on this. And uh, his first response, is, I don't know how I think, and who cares anyway? Uh, but we pressed him and pressed him and pressed him. And we got, and let me just uh, finish with some of the things he said about how he thinks. My upbringing in a three-generation family made me an unconscious Confucianist. It seeps into you, the Confucianist belief, that society works best where every man aims to be a gentleman. The underlying philosophy is that for a society to work well, you must have the interests of the mass of the people, that society takes priority over the interests of the individual. This is the primary difference with the American principle, the primary rights of the individual. I am a liberal in the classic sense of that word. 
in that I am not fixed on a particular theory of the world or of society. By the way, needless to say, he has, he has no ideology, so there's clearly no place for him in Washington. Uh, he is a, uh, an unapologetic Hobbesian. Here's what he has to say. Human beings, reg- and can you imagine any Western politician saying what he's... Human beings, regrettable though it may be, are inherently vicious and have to be restrained from their viciousness. We may have conquered space, but we have not learned to conquer our own primeval instincts. And emotions that were necessary for our survival in the Stone Age, not in the Space Age. I have always thought that humanity was animal-like, while Confucius' theory says that it can be improved. I am not sure it can be, but it can be trained. It can be disciplined. You can make a left-hander right with his or her right hand, but you cannot really change his or her natural-born instinct. I want to say he's a great listener. I worked for George Schultz, had the privilege once of working for George Schultz, who once said, my presence, he said, listening is an underrated way of acquiring knowledge. And Lee Kuan Yew is a great listener, and one of the problems Graham and I had was we'd fly all the way to Singapore, and then he would want to ask us questions, and we kept uh, trying to deflect him. I'm going to finish with these last two points. We argue, what is the biggest life experience you had which affected the way your worldview, the way you see the world? Here's what he said. He said... I never thought that the Japanese could conquer Singapore and push the British out. They did and brutalized us, including me. I was 18 and a half when that happened. On my way to Oxford, I learned about power, back to 19th century uh, uh, concepts of the balance of power. I learned about power long before Mao Zedong wrote that power came from the barrel of the gun. The Japanese taught me this in Singapore in the 1940s. The Japanese invasion of Singapore was the single biggest political education of my life because for three and a half years I saw the meaning of power and how power and politics went together and I also understood how people trapped in a power situation responded because they had to live. And then finally at the very end we asked how do you wish to be remembered? And he said, well first of all, let me start. Sorry. First of all we asked, who do you admire and why? He's, he's met everybody for the last half century. He's, his answer was De Gaulle, Deng Xiaoping, and Winston Churchill. De Gaulle because he had tremendous guts. Deng was a great man because he changed China from a broken back state. And Churchill because any other person would have given up. And then how did he wish to be remembered? Quote, I do not wish to be remembered as a statesman. First of all, I do not classify myself as a statesman. 
I put myself down as determined, consistent, and persistent. I set out to do something, and I keep on chasing it until it succeeds. That is all. Anyone who thinks he is a statesman needs to see a psychiatrist. <laughs> Thank you, Chairman. I think two terrific presentations, which gives you a flavor for how much fun this book really is to read, that, that so many passages are so interesting and actually so controversial. Let me start with two not really substantive questions, then get on to the substance, which is I've got two great experts on both sides here. I could say political sides, too. But why did you do this jointly? Well, the short answer is that we are colleagues. We taught a course together. Uh, we're friends, and we both admired Lee Kuan Yew. And so it seemed, uh, it was kind of a strange idea when we first started doing it. But it actually, um, I think if either one of us had been doing it alone, we wouldn't have got him to feel as comfortable. To, uh, uh, so it was fun. It was Graham's idea, uh, and uh, I was uh, delighted to come along. We both had known him for a long time before and had seen him many times. Um, and we found over uh, uh, the decades that uh, we're smarter when we work together than not. We, uh, I graded all the papers uh, for 14 years in our foreign policy course at Harvard that we taught. Well, that was the division of labor. Th thousands of them. Um, no, no, I really didn't grade them all. It seemed like it from uh, at some point. But um, I think Graham is right that he knew us both uh, but not as a couple, uh, uh, if I may put it like that. And so we came to him in different ways, through different routes. And he was, I think Graham would agree, he was quite relaxed with us. There was a trust, uh, and uh, I think I'm not revealing more than I should when I say that we taped our conversations with him and then sent the transcripts to him to be sure that we had it right and that uh, there was nothing in it, in, in, in what he had to say to us, that he'd had second thoughts about. He never changed a word in, uh, in looking at those transcripts. No editing whatsoever, and I think this comes out in the book. How's the book done? It's uh, been, uh, uh, well, for one week it jumped to the top uh, Oh, I don't know, 50 in the Amazon list. It's been on the uh, number one bestseller in Asia for many weeks right. and in Singapore. Uh, and it's had a reasonable uh, circulation in the U.S., not as much yet as I would wish. Uh, and I think a, a place that also where I think it's not found its niche yet is in the for people in the financial and investment world where... I mean, if I were thinking about China or India or Asia or, um, you know, macro hedges, I mean, my Lord, if you had a guy like Lee Kuan Yew to give you his guidance to what's going on, you should pay him some huge amount of money and you get it for 12 bucks in a book. So, uh, but in any case, I think uh, uh, we're happy with the book. It, it, we could have made it. 800 pages long, we decided to make it nice and slim, uh, where you can basically read any chapter, 
but I think what you said is right, Steve. So you're you're like our ideal reader, that if you read the answer to the question, you look and you say, whoa, he can't say that. And you think, well, he can say whatever he wants. That's what he says. And you think, well, let me think about it. And you often may not agree, but I think in every instance you've got a new set of coordinates that you at least have to grapple with because these are not casual views of somebody who doesn't matter. These are views of somebody who's extremely well informed and who may know more about China than I know, so maybe I better rethink my own views. Yeah. Just to add one thing, it is, uh, uh, I think, approaching 30, we, we've sold 30,000 copies of it, which in this domain is a bestseller. Um, and of course, it's Graham and I don't fool ourselves, it's because of what Lee Kuan Yew has to say. There is a, uh, uh, an edition coming out in China of the book, uh, another one in Mongolia, another one in Vietnam. So out there, uh, people are finding it worth reading. And it's been excerpted uh, in China already. Uh, uh, maybe I can just say what he says about Xi Jinping is that uh, he's tough. He's not, uh, he's come through a tough life cultural <coughs> revolution, and he's not like his immediate predecessor, a uh, careerist, if I may say that. Uh, uh, one could find uh, a variety of words, but that he's lived a tougher life. He is a man of steel, the recently uh, 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 chosen uh, president of China. So, uh, but again, uh, 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 Xi Jinping calls Li Kuan Yu my mentor, and that's been true of every Chinese leader since Deng Xiaoping. Among the blurbs on the book is uh, from Xi Jinping, which says, quote, our senior leader who has our respect. Put on your farm, I know you're using his words, but put on your, your uh, foreign policy hat. And before I get to where I disagree with the senior minister or the senior mentor, ask you where do you disagree with him most on the ch in the China section or the U.S.-China relations section? Good question. Um, but I, I don't count myself a serious uh, uh, scholar of China. I'm extremely interested in China. I'm interested in American foreign policy and national security, so one can't help take account of this this juggernaut or this phenomenon. So I've and I've read uh, Henry's book and you know I've read you know uh, whatever a hundred books on China. But as a person who doesn't speak Mandarin, doesn't really have much feel for the for the context. I I find him uh, everywhere insightful and provocative. And actually, if I compare him with. Uh, other people who were coordinates for me. So I would say um, uh, Kevin Rudd, who's been the Prime Minister to uh, Australia, I would say is a quite insightful about China in the recent period. Or uh, 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 Stape Roy, uh, right. who's uh, now at the Woodrow Wilson Center, he seems to me to be extremely thoughtful. Henry, obviously, of course, uh, Kissinger. Uh, 
I think Lee Kuan Yew, uh, maybe in part because he sees things from the inside out, because he actually is ethnically Chinese, but he is first, second, and third Singaporeans. So his right. his identity is as a, a the guardian of Singapore, and uh, I think he sees more into the uh, dynamics in in China uh, than. Uh, most anybody. Bob? I think the one, one thing that I was extremely surprised by, if you if you ask him, I mean, he, if, when he does the weaknesses of China, he's got a better, I, mean, I do, a, I have a, a, a kind of accounts that I keep on uh, U.S. short or long, China short or long for countries. What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? Well, in China, he comes up with several that I never have heard of any person ever in the maybe maybe there's some others, but that I had never heard of anybody else identifying. So what what are the problems for China? Well he's got a whole long list of them. But uh, here maybe there's somewhere else. He says, you know, they got a problem with the language. Chinese. He says this is Chinese like Chinese like a prison. A language that shapes the thinking through epigrams and 4,000 years of texts that suggests everything worth saying has already been said and said better by some earlier writer. So when you answer a question, you try to think which one of these things applies. So as he says, he tried to persuade one of the Chinese leaders that they should switch and make English the first language. <laughs> he said, this was not well received, okay? Uh, but in Singapore, they made English the first language. And so his kind of analogy is the difference between a, a kind of an open system and a closed system. And I'd say, whoa, you know, who's going to imagine somebody saying to a Chinese leader, you know, well, you could just change your language. Yeah. Um, I think it's a terrific question, and it, it made me wonder... Well, what did I think about these subjects before I started talking to him? <laughs> but because um, he certainly has affected uh, deeply the way I uh, think, and I'm in the same uh, category <coughs> as I am, being very interested in China, but not a China scholar. Um, uh, I would say two things. Uh, uh, I hope he's right about America. I'm a, not a decla declinist, uh, but his view of the balance of power in Asia is so dependent on American renewal and vitality that can, one can't help wonder whether that co colors his confidence in American renewal and vitality. Something that didn't make it in the book, and many things didn't make it in the book because we were determined not to go on and on and on, uh, was I asked him after he was eloquent, as you'll see, on American strengths um, and a uh, sense of, of uh, reinvention, I said, well, what would shake your uh, confidence that once again the United States will reinvent itself? And his answer was, well, and this was before our last presidential election, the answer was, well, if your next president, Obama or Romney, goes through his entire term without seriously addressing the debt problem, I'll begin perhaps to wonder 
Well, for those of you who <laughs> read the Washington Press, perhaps he'll be wondering. The other uh, question I'd ask, and again, uh, there are many people in the room who'd have a more informed view of this. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew categorizes civilizations and people in simple terms. And he does it, uh, uh, because he does it, he produces enormous clarity and allows us to capture some of that, that in a book no bigger than that one. But on the issue of, uh, which Graham mentioned, of uh, uh, Chinese, the, the civilizational effect of Chinese on invention, in which he goes on to say, notice the Chinese basically don't invent anything. And he contrasts it with the United States' sense of invention. I wonder if that really is... Uh, an overreach about this China. And uh, I always, it's sweeping. It's enormously, it is a very big idea because he says they, the, the people of China will not be able to transcend this, this box they're in of this 4,000 years of, of ideograms and so forth. Well, I just wonder if it's true uh, because you have generational changes in China China is out in the world, as many people in this room know better than I do. I, I really want, she, he said at one point, where are the Bill Gateses in China? Well, maybe they're 14 years old now, or they're 26, or they're something or other. So it's not so much that I think he's necessarily wrong. I'm pretty not known widely for having much humility. Uh, but uh, you think that's an understatement. Uh, but I'm pretty humble in uh, finding things to disagree with him about, but I just wonder, and we'll be able to see this, something of a laboratory experiment, as China frees itself to, in many crucial ways, and our chairman here could speak much more eloquently than I about this, whether we'll find this sense of invention uh, and uh, creativity uh, if the state gets its uh, strong hand off those dimensions of human existence. So that, but I would say one last thing, I should say this, because U.S. Ambassador to India, I have to say this or I won't get back to New Delhi. He's absolutely lacerating on India. And uh, he says basically it's not a real country. And it's rather... When he, when he said that, yeah. the ambassador almost fell off of his chair. Yeah, right, right. Well, anyway, um, and it's unrequited uh, affection and hope. He's known all those leaders since Nehru. And he had great hopes for India. And uh, he has been disappointed. He says it's a mistake, as many people do, to use India and China as nouns in the same sentence. Uh, because you will be misled. And he wants India to play a balancing role in Asia regarding the, the rise of Chinese power, but he, uh, his hopes are forlorn that that will happen, uh, and he regrets that. Uh, I think he over, India, India is a subject I know better than China, and I think he's, it's certainly true that many of the things 
he criticizes in India are worth criticizing, he may go too far in saying India is not a real country. Um, but that's another example. But with respect to China and U.S.-China relations and the balance of power, there's nothing I disagree with in terms of the great strategic thoughts he has about the rise of Chinese power and uh, the United States' role in Asia and so on. It's not a word I disagree with. He's a Kissingerian. I mean, he and Henry have been friends, as we know, for much of their adult lives. And they are now maybe the two incandescent strategic realists uh, on the face of the planet, a, uh, a group that's diminishing in number every year, sadly, <laughs> Uh, as ideology infects our view of foreign policy, but uh, he is just, he is classic Metternichian 19th century strategist. Uh, and I, can I say just one more thing? He is arguably the inventor of geoeconomics as a notion of international uh, uh, interaction in the current era. And by that, I would define it uh, as the use of economic tools for geopolitical purposes. Not for economic purposes, for, but for geopolitical purposes. And he believes that China is a, as we've discussed before, Stephen and I, uh, a very skillful uh, uh, user of geoeconomics, which the United States is not, but it's just another example of. Uh, uh, how fecund his mind is as he looks. So the balance of power is what I want to say. The balance of power in the 19th century was on the battlefield. In the 19th century, Napoleon was defeated on the battlefield. In the Cold War, the balance of power was partly uh, ideological around the globe. Uh, many places, as a Soviet. Uh, a Soviet uh, official once said to me, notice we're struggling over places where neither one of us would ever want to take our families on vacation. <laughs> uh, but what Lee Kuan Yew says now is the big economic dimension of the balance of power. Um, uh, Richard Haas's new book, uh, which I commend to you, uh, Foreign Policy Begins at Home, about the United States, captures the same idea. And I think Lee Kuan Yew is arguably the first person inside or outside academia uh, who has identified this big new economic component of, uh, of the balance of power, and one that I think our own government, if you're an American, hasn't yet digested. So when, in the book, you ask the right question, you, when you ask about this whole being number one, and this is where I disagree Good. with the senior mentors. You asked the right question, which is, are Chinese leaders serious about displacing the United States as the number one power in Asia, in the world? Then the answer is actually grouped together without really distinguishing the two. You asked two separate questions, but the answer is really one, even though there's a whole argument that the near seas, the far seas, the Chinese conceptualize this quite differently. And he says, this, the Chinese think about being number one. Well, I've read lots of what the Chinese leaders say, and I've talked to a lot of Chinese leaders, and what's missing from his answer is 
I don't really think they think a lot about being number one. They think a lot about staying in power. They think about staying in power. And the things that he attributes to their desire to be number one really are driven by the need to stay in power. Like any political party, you do what's necessary to retain power. And that's a lot of what it's about. And so that's where I find his, this answer kind of, well, of course, why not? That's a little flip. Do they want to be number one? Of course, why not? Well, the answer is when you're confronted with these environmental problems, these social problems, the, the population problems, the rich-poor problems, the, I mean, you name it, the minority problems, these are so overwhelming that what you worry about as the leader is dealing with this. And that actually, if that then has implications for what U.S. policy should be towards China, if they're thinking about number one and displacing America, that's different than if they're thinking about retaining power and doing what's necessary to retain power. And there's certain different policy prescriptions. So I don't know how you okay, think. Let me, let me agree and disagree. So I would say, I mean, if I'm doing this in my class, just in general, I say, what do political leaders care about first? All political leaders. Survival. Right. Hanging under the tiger. You got it. So this is called the primacy of domestic politics. Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local politics. The answer is absolutely. And in international politics, people who study international politics mainly want to talk about international politics. But if you look at what Obama does, or what Cameron does, or what Merkel does, or what uh, Xi Jinping does, I would say think first about their domestic politics, and boy, do you have a lot of clues. Okay, that's number one. <laughs> Number, so that point I agree completely. Secondly, uh, for the Chinese leaders, uh, the syllogism goes, uh, how do you legitimize uh, the Communist Party, which is no longer communist, but the Leninist Mandarins who, who run the country, uh, and how do they maintain their legitimacy? The answer is, we deliver to you uh, super fast growth. You let us drive the bus. That's it. And that's been a great deal. And I would say, actually, if they went around and offered this to most people in most other countries, you would get a lot of people signing up for such a leadership. You delivered to me double-digit growth. I think you probably get a majority of Americans say, well, why don't you try it for a decade and let's see how it, how it feels. Okay. So, for, so they do that. And uh, um, th therefore, uh, they need what are all the conditions required for that. And Lee Kuan Yew says, I think this would be considered general conventional wisdom, they need a, 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 a benign environment. Right. That's why they don't want to have any confrontation, because they need a benign environment, understanding they need trade, they need sea lanes, they need... So that's a good reason, again, for not confronting the U.S. until you're stronger. Okay? Secondly, though, if and as that becomes less... Uh, or as, as, e, as e, economic growth slows a bit, which is uh, even you can see some evidence of, and if it should slow more, what's their next best hope? How about nationalism? Okay, And is there rising nationalism? And are Chinese proud that somehow a broken back country is now seeming like a normal country? I would say everybody whom I know who deals with any Chinese sure. think yes. And I would say, is this very normal historically? Yes, this seems quite reasonable. So. 
the idea that for normal Chinese today, and I would say this is for the mayor of any 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 city in in China that I've seen, you say to them, "Are you prouder to be Chinese today than you were ten years ago or twenty years ago?" You bet. And do you think that because China is stronger, it should have more say and soy in the world? They say, "Yeah." And when Xi talks about the China dream, you're talking about you know China kind of coming back to its rightful place, a little bit more respected. So you go to international meetings of ASEAN or other Chinese are thinking they should be moving up at the table, up a little higher at the table, a little bit better hotel, a little bit better. So I would say yes, that looks quite normal to me. So I I think the the. Uh, uh, Lee Kuan Yew's proposition that then they, as they begin to look at this, they think, well, should the Americans be the arbiter of Scarborough Shoals? Uh, we have a dispute with the Philippines about some territory, and uh, the Americans should tell us how this should be adjudicated? Well, why? I mean, we live here. We're a big country. We, why? So I, 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 I have, a, I think, this seems to be almost of a piece. I mean, Kevin Rudd, who was visiting us recently, had just been there talking around the circle. This is this Australian, Australian former foreign minister, and he said, you know, one of the guys who's quite part of the new regime, very high-level guy, said to him, you know, we're just tired of being pushed around by the Philippines. <laughs> and I got it. Let me open the floor to... To questions, start over here. Yeah. Please uh, identify yourself and speak very loudly. Sure, I, I would posit that. And identify yourself. Chuck, Mark Fulton, Edgar Barnett Partners. We do consulting work probably work taking people to China and India. Um, I, I would posit what Lee Kuan Yew is saying is that as a Confucian, we have to look at the Middle Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom use itself in the world. Loud. And so if the, if the Middle Kingdom uses itself in the world in a certain way, and through that prism, we look at the role of China and it's not just power staying, staying in power, it's about what the Middle Kingdom should be. If you look at it that way, uh, Lee Kuan Yew makes a lot of sense. Can I just chime in and say, uh, I take it uh, as a fact that none of us know what the Chinese leadership says to each other about the issue that we're now discussing. That is to say, do they intend to be number one in uh, Asia and then the world? And we are unlikely to know what they say to one another. But it seems to me that that's not a crucial question to have answered for American policymakers. And there's probably a debate inside China anyway about that, sure. with some being more um, uh, robust and ambitious on that score than others, some having different timelines than others. But what is, I think, indisputable is that the growth and application of Chinese power in Asia is changing the balance. That's indisputable. And the challenge for American foreign policy is to find applications of its power and influence to balance that. The Chinese tend to think that that's called containment. Uh, I don't believe that's the apt uh, concept to apply to what I'm describing. Uh, 
Lee Kuan Yew, since he's met all these people, spent hundreds of hours with the Chinese leadership, uh, thinks he knows what they want. And I don't think to conclude that it's, it's uh, necessarily contra to what you were saying at the outset. See, they do want to stay in power, but he thinks civilizationally, civil, Lee Kuan Yew believes civilizationally, they find it an unnatural historic period that for the last half century, the United States has called the shots in Asia. They think that's unnatural and that uh, China civilizationally has a much better claim than the United States on the basis of geography, if nothing else, to be the most important power in Asia, to replace the United States. But as I say, there's probably a debate about this. It, it needs to be said that the, on that, and it doesn't appear in that same passage, but appears later, Graham adverted to this earlier, they have, Lee Kuan Yew believes though, whether they think that or not, that even if they do, they have a very long timeline a very long timeline, half a century. And uh, that's his view for a variety of reasons which he goes into in the book. So again, can the United States, and I, of course, having the professional experience I've had, keep asking myself, can the United States have a coherent policy over many uh, administrations from both sides of the aisle to deal with the rise of Chinese power. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's an enormous challenge for us as a country um, uh, because he believes that uh, this will increasingly, as China gets more powerful, <coughs> make it awkward, if not unpleasant, for the United States because we're so unused to this. He basically gives the Americans the advice, get used to the rise of Chinese power. Don't get hostile to it, but get used to it and deal with it and don't expect the Chinese through self-restraint to solve your problem for you. He says the U.S. has yet to settle on a bipartisan policy on China since 19, since the since the disintegration of the Soviet Union, do you guys think that's right? Well, this is an interesting one. It's a good good point. And Kissinger has a view that that says the great accomplishment of American foreign policy in the period actually since since 72, since 72 yeah. has been a bipartisan policy that's been continued. I, I kind of think uh, Lee Kuan Yew has the better side of this argument. I think that the, initially there was a, a great uh, uh, footing for U.S.-Chinese relations in the day after 72, which was we shared a common enemy, which we both feared and cared more about than right. we cared about our differences. After that enemy collapsed post-91, I'd say that uh, even though we've sort of stayed on autopilot, the, the, ground, the grounds or foundations for it have been less clear. 
Hmm. We're going to need to, because I, I promised we would end on time. C can I just ask one yeah. final question? Did you ask him at all about the, um, his opposition to the split from Malaysia? Which, which struck me as one of the, it was so fundamental in the beginning of Singapore that when the Singapore-Malaysian Federation was established, yep. he opposed the split of Singapore from Malaysia. He, he really, he, he wanted to. And he dis he discusses And, and, and that was such a fundamental, I mean, yeah. it's such a fascinating, that he is, obviously, the, the success of it for Singapore is right. almost beyond comprehension. And so early in your career to make a, a political judgment that was so fundamentally flawed, and now to be this, this absolute, you know, icon yeah. of. He, of, he, des uh, he describes this in his autobiography, uh, from the first world to from the third world to the first world in one generation, which is like uh, fifteen hundred pages, and I cannot remember. I apologize. What how he gave us the explanation? His explanation is that he hoped the union uh, with Malaysia would give uh, protection against the communist, uh, growing communist influence inside Singapore. That was his basic. Uh, but we didn't. Of course, we. It's uh, history. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, and we. The, uh, is there? Can I just say? I always, when you do a project like this, you then finish with it, and it's now in press. Well, what do you wish you'd asked him? <laughs> and so I will take up on a. And I can't believe we didn't ask him this, <laughs> but we didn't. Which is the more bellicose Chinese policy. Uh, with respect to the East and South China Seas, beginning whenever you would pick at 2007 or whenever you do, is something of a mystery to people who follow China, and there's lots of debate about why is it, and and we didn't have the wit, although we spent lots and lots of time, Graham and I, thinking about the questions we wanted to ask him. That seems like, at least to me, such an obvious one that we didn't ask. So, uh, so, uh, and I, I would be fascinated what his explanation of this somewhat more uh, bellicose Chinese policy, since so much is written about it in the West now, trying to understand whether it's strength of the PLA or bureaucratic infighting or uh, the road to the presidency or whatever it is. But we didn't ask him that. Well, I hope this discussion is... So you ask him the next time you see him, ask him yeah, yeah, that that's right. I hope this discussion has given you a taste of what a wonderful book that this is. Uh, but thank you both for writing the book and being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.